This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to The Minefield. Well, there are my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Do you notice, Scott, I started the year trying to figure out what the alternative to me <laughs> saying that was. Uh, I've just given, I've completely <laughs> forgot about that. I'm glad. I'm glad. I mean, oh, pe- no, I'm not. It was poor effort by me, especially nah, because, because we had that whole discussion about complicity, which I think you wanted in there yep. and something like that. But we both agree we need... Like a better catchphrase. It's not really a catchphrase, is it? But we need a better version of whatever that is. And we just only think of it at the time when the music starts playing. So yeah. it never gets solved. It's true. I mean, one of the real problems here, of course, is that the very idea of moral has been so moralized that it's almost become rendered useless uh, in so many of the things. I, I mean, you know, we, we need to devote, I really feel, we need to devote an entire show to the whole idea of moral judgment. Um, I feel like we do that a lot, though. Yeah, we we do. We play around with it. We sort of bring it up in certain conversations. I just feel that when people, and, you know, the number of times you hear people sort of interviewed on the news or talking on podcasts and they, you know, th- this was the the ethical and moral that's decision that I made, using both ethical and moral as interchangeable or synonymous or two terms that go together, or even sort of, you know, engaging in forms of really highly opinionated determination, kind of ruling on a particular issue, thinking that that is somehow a morally serious act. You know, one of the things that's always struck me is that the very idea of the moral is supposed to be that which cultivates or safeguards the space in between us. Uh, There is something ambient about the moral rather than divisive about the moral. Um, And for that reason, I think so many of the ways that we use the very language, the very vocabulary of morality or ethics, I just think I just think we we get it catastrophically wrong, which puts a show like ours on very thin ice indeed. My favourite way of us starting a show is by having a production meeting about what other shows should be. I wonder what the record is for the longest we've gone without actually doing the show we're doing. Anyway. Oh, Lord. Let's not break it today. We should probably... Actually, this is a good one because... Oh, this is um, such a good show. Oh, man. It's it's not a... I I don't say it's a good one because I really even know what's about to happen or even that I am that into it, although I am. I am into it. But it's how excited you've been and for how long. it's true. And it was just, it's taken us forever to get around to this, but we're finally here, Scott. So your day has arrived. The floor is yours. What are we doing today? Okay. Well, we've done a fair bit over the last four years on social media platforms. Um, It's something, even when we haven't been talking about social media platforms, we find a way of talking about social media (laughs) platforms. And I think that does reflect something of the ubiquity of social media in our common life. Um, But let's sort of take a little sidestep, because we're not just talking about the communicative, say, dimensions of social media platforms, which are the primary things, I think, that we've talked about, the way that, that the logic of the technology itself has a corrosive effect on the way that we speak to one another, entertain one another, uh, the way that we nurture, cultivate the conditions of our common life. Something we haven't talked quite so much about, I think, is the very logic of what's sometimes called platform capitalism. I do find, Waleed, the whole idea of platform capitalism just so tantalizingly 
delicious and problematic at the same time. I remember years ago, when I first started working on and with the work of the um, Slovenian uh, philosopher and cultural critic Slavoj Žižek, one of the observations of, of his that kind of first stuck with me is when he said that the Nike logo is the perfect embodiment of the modern logic of the commodity. Because the Nike logo is the only thing that's profitable. It's the only thing that really exists under the name Nike. Uh, everything else is outsourced. The advertising is outsourced to advertising agencies. The manufacturing of the shoes or the clothing or whatever else is done in, let's say, less than necessarily reputable places overseas at very, very low cost. Um, all of these things are taking place, and the company owns virtually none of it. What it does own is the logo. And I, I kind of feel that there's something about that that's also going on with the very idea of platform capitalism. You think of something like Facebook or like Twitter or like Uber or the example of another company that I'll mention now in the hopes that we're going to, well, not the hopes, in the expectation that we're going to get to it later. Um, but even a, um, a crowdfunding platform like GoFundMe. These are things that own precious little. What they create is the platform that then users use in order to both produce the material that is featured on those platforms that then use that platform to hawk their wares or to bring consumer and, say, service provider together. Uh, and then the companies that provide the platform, they then make their money through advertising revenue. In other words, a certain amount of material is featured on these platforms. Facebook, for instance, then sells ads so that people who then view those products in the process of using their platforms, uh, you know, the money then gained through advertisers then accrues to the platforms. Or something like Uber, where it really is someone needs a ride, someone else owns a car, and that all, all the platform does is it brings the person who needs the ride with the person who uses the car together, and then Uber sort of skims something off the top, among other things. Yeah, this is very much down the line of Bauman's liquid maternity. Yes, it is. Yeah, he makes this point really strongly where he says, you know, the, the capitalists of yore had an interest in really big, expensive things that they had to maintain, yeah, factories right. and railways and oil rigs and stuff like that, whereas the people who make the money now don't own or care for any asset, yeah. really, because whatever it is that makes the money is just in the air. It's this is part of liquid modernity, right? It's not solid. There aren't solid things that, that do this. And so what you're describing, I, I yeah, I drive myself mad thinking about this because yeah. what it means is that the profit goes to the one who isn't producing anything. Yeah, that's right. Or perhaps the best way you could put it is it requires quite a significantly redefined notion of productivity mm -hmm. or of the production of something. But I think of this with food delivery apps. They don't develop the recipes. They don't, it's not their creativity, their ingenuity, any mm. of that. They don't even offer the labour. They just connect the two on a platform that it gives you as a consumer access to it. Uh, and skimming off the top seems like a generous... That's right. Actually, it's it's a little more than that. Right? I've, yes, it is. I've had serious, like I've had conversations with 
restaurateurs when I've gone in to have a meal somewhere and, you know, if I know them personally, we'll have a chat about it and they'll talk about, you know, that they're kind of snookered. They, if they're not on the app, they don't get the business. If they are on the app, they have a choice. They either raise their prices to make their offering less appealing by virtue of market hmm. supply and demand, or they offer their meal at the same price and take home far less profit. Yeah. So, and then we don't need to expound upon the plight of the drivers and the extent to which they're remunerated. So skimming, I think, perhaps misrepresents what's, what's yeah, happening. Yeah, exploitation is almost certainly the, uh, the more appropriate term. Hey, can I say something really controversial, though? Sure. There is one... It bother me. I mean, it might bother our managers. There, there is you know one other, let's call it an economic system or economic logic, where capital and labor are indissociable, where the one who is the capital and the one who provides the labor are one and the same person. And that is, of course, slavery. Um, and I feel that there is a troubling analog between mm. particularly rideshare platforms where the person who is the capital and provides the labor and receives precious little remuneration from being the capital and providing the labor. There is a, a straight line, I think, that can in fact be drawn uh, with earlier systems of slavery, where the body of the slave is both capital and the thing providing the labor. There's something, there's something there about the logic of capitalism that I find um, troubling on all sorts of different levels. That's... I can't tell. We have did, to pause the show and... Did you like that or do you out. hate that? I'm very stimulated by it. I just don't know. And I, like I'm attracted to, I see where you're going and I quite like it, but I don't know how far it holds. No, I don't so think we'd it... have to come back and finish the show in a month when I've had a chance <laughs> to think about it. I'm I mean, not... the obvious differences are there, right? Like of there course is payment. there. Uh, of, of you course. can leave, et cetera. And there, and so is the a, there, is... there is a voluntary servitude on the part of, say, rideshare drivers that didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. although that raises questions of what is volition. Yes, that's right. right. But, <laughs> but but then the question I have is how different is that to all kinds of other forms of labour that are yeah, not modern that, that's true. that we've known about? But anyway, it's a very stimulating thought at the very least. Okay. Here, however, is the missing link, the little sort of missing element to platform capitalism that we haven't talked about. We don't, we actually, we have very, very rarely talked about it on this show. And that is the idea that for platforms to work that rely on traffic and that rely on that traffic being monetized either indirectly through advertisers or directly uh, in the instance of, say, a fundraising platform like GoFundMe. And the idea is someone can create a cause, something that they're wanting to raise funds for. Enough people then donate to that cause, and then the platform that hosts that cause then takes its cut of the money that's been raised uh, for the sake of that particular cause. Now, that's, of course, different from something like Facebook or Twitter, where uh, people use it, eyes come to this particular platform, you throw adverts into the mix of people's use of that particular platform, and then there's the indirect remuneration through advertisers. So, you know, the logic is the same. The mechanism is a little bit different. But what they both have in common is what I think can safely be called, and please correct me if you think this isn't the right term, but a kind of content agnosticism. It doesn't matter what attracts the eyes. It doesn't matter 
what draws the attention. It doesn't matter what keeps people on the platform as long as people stay on the platform or use the platform, which is why for a long time I've been far less concerned with the appearance, say, of overtly problematic or, say, violence-inciting or hate-based or uh, even sort of genocide-promoting content on platforms like Facebook in particular, um, or the presence of kind of loony conspiratorial or a sort of, you know, COVID misinformation material on something like YouTube. I mean, all of those things are troubling. They are either corrosive or they are actively harmful. They may even be devastating to the conditions of our common life and the possibility of a peaceful society. These things can be, I think, readily, relatively easily with enough time and resources identified and then removed. What I've long found really troubling is the rampant, promiscuous commingling of things that are true, things that are trivial, things that are ins- inconsequential, things that are blatantly manufactured. And the way that these things mingle together, they don't even need to be indistinguishable, but it's the fact that they're all together within the common stream. Uh, When you wade into these platforms, you're finding news, you're finding gossip, you're finding baby photos, you're finding online platform-based games, uh, you're finding things that are little more than, uh, than pure speculation. And stuff meant to be aggregated into other platforms. So it's it's the way it's the content agnosticism. Whatever content draws people atten- people's attention to this common space, most of these platforms tend to sort of care very little uh, about what that content is, until until you reach a point where the content that is hosted on the platforms is so toxic, or is so polarizing, or is so divisive, or so damages the brand of that platform, or so compromises people's ability to use that platform and enjoy their usage of that platform, that it then poses a kind of environmental risk to the platform itself. And then certain uh, measures need to be taken. We've seen, especially over the last four years, We've seen the lengths and the dilemmas that have faced platforms like Facebook and like Twitter when it comes to uh, what to do with misinformation, conspiracy theories, uh, outright lies, campaign materials that are more conspiratorial and and mendacious than they are genuinely informative. Um, We've seen the difficulties that these platforms have had in trying to regulate, trying to get uh, get their arms around what to do with the issues of kind of, of of content management and curation, what's we've never talked about, this leads us to today's topic, is a platform like GoFundMe, which is easily on the surface of things, the most benign and most benevolent seeming of all of the platforms. Because who couldn't get behind the idea of well, all we're doing is we're taking worthy causes. And we're connecting worthy causes with people who are willing to give to those causes. This just seems like an efficient, technologically mediated, globalized form of charitable giving, right? Well, the word worthy is doing a a lot. The word worthy is doing a lot of work there. That's right. That's right. Why don't you take it over from there, Willie? Well, no. No, that's precisely the question. Yeah. I mean, you might be better at fleshing this out than I am. It just occurs to me that... Saying we take worthy causes and then give them this opportunity kind of implies some kind of mechanism by which that worthiness is determined. Mm-hmm. 
like you might, I mean, you, you probably don't, but you might imagine some kind of committee overseeing applications and then saying, oh, well, this one looks worthy, let's put that one up or whatever. But of course, that's not the way GoFundMe works. No. It's It operates in the Wild West fashion that social media generally tends to work in the way that you've described, the sort of commingling of all kinds of things. Not just commingling, really, just the perpetual clashing of things. Mm. And so what you get is anything that can attract any level of support, really, you whack it up there and you see what you go for. And then occasionally this precipitates some kind of, uh, I was saying, could I say crisis? Maybe it's a branding crisis in the way that you previously described, I'm not sure. But their GoFundMe pages get taken down because they become a little bit too hot. So if I recall correctly, I think when Israel Folau was in the midst of his, right. was it his dispute, his legal dispute with yep. the union, mm-hmm. the ARU, whatever, um, his, he put up a page that was taken down on the basis that GoFundMe doesn't promote discrimination. So mm. it wasn't it wasn't that the the fundraising was fraudulent somehow. It wasn't that they say they're raising money for this, but actually they're just siphoning it off to their private pockets. It was, we refused to provide the platform for this cause. Yeah. So it was a political judgment. I think you saw that with, uh, was it the truckers? Yes. The freedom, Did this happen the freedom in convoy in, in Canada and then the convoy to Canberra in Australia. Both were fabulously, both were fabulously successful fundraisers. Um, uh, on, on both fronts though, the money could not or would not be dispersed by GoFundMe, unless, well, in the instance of Canada, I mean, there were real legal issues because the the convoy itself was engaging in activity that had been deemed illegal and seditious. Um, yeah. Uh, so that that raises immediate problems. There were also issues. There were there, there were legal issues with the disbursement of funds for the convoy to Canberra as well, both because of the way that that convoy was uh, was promoting or promulgating misinformation, disinformation concerning COVID-19 and vaccinations. Uh, mm-hmm. But also there were some concerns about the possession of firearms and and other things. So yes, yes, on both fronts, there were real concerns. And those concerns had to be satisfied in one instance before um, funds could be then released by GoFundMe. In another case, uh, those funds were then returned to the people who donated and the entire thing was rendered. Um, you weren't able to, to, to donate to it. But then, Waleed, you've got other Really interesting examples. For instance, I don't know if you recall this, but the building of the border wall in the United States. Oh, no, I didn't know this. Yeah, that was one of GoFundMe's most successful fundraising initiatives, which was then terminated because not only uh, could the funds not, in fact, be used to deliver said wall, uh, but also those who organized the GoFundMe campaign uh, were fraudulently um, uh, benefiting, let's say, from the collection of funds. So fraudulently benefiting seems to me a straight up and down reason to deny a page. Yes, that's right. So that's obvious. Okay, but then let's say such and such a person. So we've recently seen Roe versus Wade uh, come under uh, legislative Supreme Court-induced cloud. Let me just put it that way. Let's just say a person in a poor state, sorry, themselves in a impoverished position, in a state that has, uh, off the back of this, uh, made abortion illegal in most circumstances. And this person then has to raise funds in order to travel to another state where abortion is more available and uh, legal, uh, but that person simply doesn't have the funds 
to travel. What if one puts up a GoFundMe request for that or a fundraiser for that, which is something that did in fact happen, not off the back of Roe versus Wade, uh, but in another circumstance. And GoFundMe took down. Uh, our guest is going to be able to speak more completely. Oh, did GoFundMe take that one down? They took that one down uh, because they didn't want to be involved in the essentially the abortion debate to core. They just didn't want to engage in it. That's interesting. See, I, I hadn't heard about that example, but what's interesting is all the examples I, that sort of come to mind for me were all against conservative causes. Yes. Well, you see, that's then something that happened later when GoFundMe then backflipped, not backflipped. They then reversed that particular position uh, and they decided that the only programs, the only causes that they would in fact host are pro-choice causes. Well, so from not wanting to get involved... To engaging in one particular side, yes. Well, to, yeah, to, to siding. Yes. Because, I mean, the other option would have been, hey, we just don't, we don't get involved by allowing you to do whatever and we just won't make a judgment on any of it. But they've made a committed decision. But see, here, here, Willie, then, is the other issue that I think goes right to the heart of social media or platform capitalist logic. There may well be certain causes that in and of themselves are perfectly worthy, are well and truly, uh, there, are no, there are no issues with this being something that people would want to back in whatever way that they can. But then either the hosting of that particular cause or it's being pulled down for whatever reason then becomes the spark, the catalyst for a huge public debate, in which case a charitable cause becomes effectively a cause celebre. It becomes the occasion of vast disagreement around people array themselves. So we've seen this again and again and again. Uh, something that is personal, something that really ought to be, perhaps, uh, the object of some kind of, some form of charitable giving, then becomes something around which people on either side may well rally. And then, of course, you have the other issues where uh, for instance, um, GoFundMe pages will be used to fundraise for people who've been victims, say, of police violence. Uh, and then GoFundMe pages will have been established in order to help raise legal funds for the perpetrators of that violence. Hmm. Which happened in the Carl Rittenhouse. Yes, it did. That's right. Case, yeah. So, I mean, this, this raises I mean, the, the other element here, the other dimension to the whole idea of worthiness that we haven't touched on, I'm not sure how much further we will touch on it, but I just have to mention it. If we think about charitable causes on a platform like GoFundMe, that can't help but also come under the logic of Facebook and Instagram itself. So, for instance, one of the, uh, the, there's some remarkable work that's been done on the way that Instagram perpetuates a crisis of loneliness. Because when I suspect when I suspect that my friends are going out to clubs without me, I'm speaking as if I'm a teenage boy. Um, if I suspect that people that I know are doing things behind my back and that suspicion remains unconfirmed, then I can pretty much live with the suspicion. I may, I may feel that I'm being shunned. I may feel that I'm not being included. But that's, that's kind of bad enough. But I can live with it. And there's something empirical that can happen that can help me get around that, get over that. But... When I put something heartfelt and put it up on Instagram and it receives exactly zero interest or 
likes or affirmative, consoling, chin-up responses, then I know that I'm alone. Uh, there, there was some remarkable work that was done uh, by some aged care researchers that I know two years ago in the production of a, of a social app that would allow people within aged care facilities to connect with their loved ones uh, much more intuitively, much more easily, uh, on the presumption that the persons in aged care facilities, the only thing that was standing in the way of them being able to communicate meaningfully with their loved ones outside was the correct technology platform that would simply facilitate mm. that. Uh, the thing that these researchers discovered to their horror is that having established this particular technology platform to be able to reach out to their loved ones and communicate with the loved ones, it deepened the despair of those within aged care facilities when their loved ones did not, in fact, communicate with them in return. So one mm. of the things that these technology platforms do is they can confirm a condition of either worthiness or unworthiness, of attention worthiness or inattentiveness on the part of others. And it creates this system then where the same rationale by which I feel affirmed by my Facebook post receiving a certain degree of attention is the same logic that confirms that my cause is worthy of donation and attention. Which then, of course, has the flip side, that if it's ignored, my God, what's wrong with me? Yeah, and, but the effect of that would matter, sorry, the effect of that would depend really on the nature of the cause. Of course it would. Like, you know, or it's putting, or putting it's, up a GoFundMe. Or it's presentation, of, Waleed, or it's presentation, possibly. I think that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think if you put up a GoFundMe for something that's highly discretionary, right? I want to raise money to, um, I don't know, do painting classes so I can then paint something. I'll paint a portrait of the people who donate or whatever. They're just silly, right? That, that being ignored, I think, lands in an altogether different way to I have a rare medical condition and the only treatment available is this pill that costs $300,000 and would you please donate and everyone ignoring that, right? Is that, like, I don't think it's as straightforward as a, a, a plea being ignored is crushing and a plea being accepted is somehow affirming in the way that, that likes on Instagram are. There's a... No. I, I, I take the point about the mechanism. The, I the, I totally the problem is that, that. There's, a, there's a capriciousness. So one person might put up a fundraising request yeah, and it be ignored. Another person might, uh, for, for, for expensive medical treatment, and it'd be largely ignored, let's say. Yeah. And another, because of more propitious circumstances, because of particular timing, because of the way that one particular influential person might have picked it up and promoted it. Yeah. Got uh, reported on television. That's a big one. Yes. And then it goes off. And, and that means then that the real problem there is the cruelty and caprice by which one person's is deemed worthy and another one's is okay. not. Okay. understand. But don't you think that that has always existed, right? Some people find their causes ignored. Some people don't. In the internet age, in the pre-internet age, there is always that. There, and there are always, therefore, people who will go through life feeling that they don't matter in the eyes of people or that their concerns don't matter. You see this with people in the medical world. It happens all the time, right? Mm. I've got this disease. No one cares about it. No one wants to believe me because there are a few of us in number or whatever it is. These things happen a lot. So is GoFundMe 
adding something that's conceptually different or are you just saying it's an amplified version of this? It's an amplified version and it provides something like objective proof of the moral, of the, of the moral unworthiness mm. uh, or, or, or of the relative disinterest of one's cause. Well, it's not objective proof, but it masquerades as... It masquerades as, that's or, right. or No, it doesn't even masquerade. You could, you could interpret it that way. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well said. Um, this is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can also catch it as a podcast anytime you like. That's on the ABC Listen app or by following The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest is Matthew Wade. He's lecturer in the Department of Social Inquiry at La Trobe University. And Matthew wrote a piece for ABC Religion Ethics a few months ago called The Ethical Dilemmas of GoFundMe, Should Everyone Be Given a Take Action Button? And it was that piece that really, uh, it galvanized, it consolidated, it helped congeal a number of concerns that I'd had for quite some time. It was really was the piece that got us talking about this in the first place. And we're thrilled then to have Matthew join us on The Minefield. Thanks, Matthew, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, do you mind if I just derail the conversation immediately by just making a quick clarification about Kyle Rittenhouse? Go, please. Just to quickly say that GoFundMe did not allow for Kyle Rittenhouse to raise money for legal, his legal defense on GoFundMe. Uh, GoFundMe, I've had, I've had a policy for quite a few years now where people are not allowed to fundraise in defense of violent crimes. And so while Rittenhouse did attempt to establish a GoFundMe campaign, that was quickly removed, and he went to another platform, Give, Send, Go, which is quite happy to host uh, those kinds of campaigns. And that is precisely how these how these particular campaigns become kind of proxy battles in wider ideological struggles. But Sorry, and you're quite right about Rittenhouse, because I think once he was acquitted, the page was reinstated yes, on GoFundMe, that's right. wasn't it? Which underscores mm. that policy. But it's an interesting policy, right? Because there is... A very strong, I would have thought, philosophical school of thought, legal school of thought that says, no, people being able to raise funds to defend themselves in a criminal trial of any description is a very worthy cause. It starts to get sensitive when you pick individual cases and go, oh, but not that guy, surely. But the idea that the presumption of innocence matters and that you should be able to raise funds for a legal defence, if you ask that question of people who are educated sort of in the liberal arts, um, I think they would say... That's that's among the worthiest of causes, right? It's fascinating that that was the policy. Yeah. Well, in principle, I agree with you, but in, it also gets to a wider issue, I think, around the presumption that we have that social media platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or crowdfunding platforms like GoFundMe, that they are a public square. And I think we need to disabuse ourselves of that notion. Mm. They are not a public square. They are privately owned companies that have profits to make, reputations to protect, and also you know, a moral obligation to decide what it is that they will allow themselves to be complicit with. And I think that applies doubly for crowdfunding platforms because it's one thing to say that Twitter allows this form of speech and doesn't allow that form of speech. It's another thing to provide material support in the form of fundraising tools that could help to finance intolerant or harmful campaigns. And so if we get away from that idea that platforms are public squares, uh, we might be able to think about 
the kind of moral obligations of these platforms in a different kind of way. Um, could I also bring in a quick historical example as well, because it relates to uh, some of the things you talked about at the opening of the program. Um, you talked about the idea of the corrosive potential of, of moral judgment. And I think this has come up in recent recent weeks. You've been discussing this this insistence that individuals must take a stand on every kind of issue and determine who they who they believe is deserving and undeserving. And part of this goes back to an historical example I'm thinking of, which was the, the New York Times annual neediest cases. So we're going to traditional media now where starting from 1912, every year around Christmas, uh, the New York Times would get together, get their journalists, get together with social workers to go out and find the 100 neediest individuals or families write a little blurb about them and publish them all in the newspaper. And then readers would decide who they would like to donate to. And what researchers discovered about that was that the readers made their determinations not on who was most needy, but on who they thought was most worthy. And that's an important distinction. Mm. And another thing that emerged was that they found this form of moral judgment to be pleasurable People liked making these determinations between who was deserving and undeserving. And in some ways, that partially explains the success of, of platforms like GoFundMe. Um, I'm, I'm speechless. This is extraordinary. What you've just described, Matthew, is essentially a moral beauty pageant. <laughs> in which case, the public derives an unseemly degree of pleasure in the moralization or the determination of the moral worthiness of one form of need over and against another. Okay. Hang on, don't we do that every day? Yeah, we do, and it's still horrible. But, but well, on. is it Here's or is my it question. Inevitable? Hang on, hang on. Here's my question, because I think we're dealing with two separate issues, and it's so important, I think, that we hold them, that we do something with them both. On the one hand, there's the issue of using technology platforms like Facebook and Twitter, YouTube, whatever, or direct funding programs, platforms like GoFundMe to either promote or to directly finance forms of anti-democratic, anti-pluralistic, genocidal, hate-based, divisive forms of activity, sedition, dissidence, whatever. So I think that's, that's one issue. The other issue is whether forms, and I'm, I'm so glad you drew the explicit, drew out the explicit nature of these things, not as in fact uh, public squares or neutral mechanisms of common or political communication, but in fact privately owned companies. The other is the problem as such with companies like this uh, getting in the business of determining or of even hosting forms of charitable giving that cannot help when it all comes down to it to be in some way cruelly capricious. In other words, one is a problem that's at the level of content, the content that these platforms feature, and the other is that the level of form itself, whether these platforms should be in the business of, uh, of charitable fundraising in the first place. Hmm. Absolutely. And it's 
it's worth noting that GoFundMe is acutely conscious of these dilemmas themselves, because one of the big differences between those those old New York Times neediest cases and the things that we see on GoFundMe today, of course, is, as you highlighted before, is who does the labor? And it is the beneficiary themselves, it is the family around them that must do this emotional, confessional labor of articulating perhaps their, their sufferings to others in the case of raising funds for medical expenses. And on a platform like GoFundMe, it is medical expenses, it is personal emergencies, and it is uh, raising money for funerals that are the three most dominant common types of campaigns on the platform by far. Around two-thirds of all the funds raised on GoFundMe are for those causes. Mm. And to succeed in that kind of competitive market of moral worthiness requires commodifying your own suffering. And that is neither easy to do in terms of having the cultural capital to able to be able to articulate your personal narrative, nor is it easy to do emotionally. And in the case of fundraisers for medical expenses, only around 12% of such campaigns in the US reach their fundraising targets. And most don't get anywhere near. And quite a lot will raise no money at all. So this alludes to something that you mentioned earlier in that the result is a really kind of cruel metric of your life's worth. And again, GoFundMe are acutely aware of this because it's ultimately damaging their brand along with causing enormous harm uh, to people. And they've been quite proactive in recent years in saying that we should not be the de facto safety net for people who need basic care and support. Their, their CEO even wrote an open letter to the US Congress last year saying that we need emergency relief during COVID. We're seeing the patterns. We're seeing the people trying to raise funds for emergency everyday expenses and they're not getting the support that they need because everybody else is struggling too. Um, those trends are happening in Australia as well in terms of charitable giving is on the decline. Volunteering hours are on the decline because everybody is struggling. And GoFundMe has been quite pronounced in recent years in saying that this is a drastic institutional failure in the US context. And we would like to go back to doing more positive celebratory fundraising causes, uh, but we can't do that until some drastic policy change happens. If we're going to evaluate all this, though, we probably have to think about the counterfactual, don't we? So that is the world without GoFundMe or sort of similar websites. So you mentioned the, what was it, 12% of medical pleas? That, are they the ones that get fully funded or get funded at all? I can't remember the data. That, that's the ones that reach their fundraising targets. Most will reach around around 40% of their target, which is not insignificant. And I would say right. that GoFundMe is a net positive to the world. I would absolutely. Yeah, that, I guess that's the point, right, that in the world without GoFundMe, they just don't get funded at all, right? Or are you saying it displaces in some way the fundraising that would have gone on? I mean, even the concept of the commodification of your suffering that you mentioned, I think it's a good insight. I, what I wonder, though, is how different that is from what would have been required in an analogue version of trying to raise money, just even among your community or, or whatever. Any way you were going to do it. I mean, charities advertise, right? They and they advertise because what they want to put in front of you 
is the suffering of certain people and the commodification of that suffering. Now, I, I take what you might say is, yeah, but you're not commodifying your suffering, you're commodifying someone else's and then asking for it. But nonetheless, it's suffering commodified in order to attract a response from, quote unquote, the market. So I see what you're drawing at, but I, I guess I just wonder at the extent of the difference that we're witnessing. Yeah, I guess I would argue that what GoFundMe has done and other crowdfunding platforms have done inadvertently, and I don't blame them for this, is to hyper-individualize what are ultimately structural issues and that have created an idea of compassion-based citizenship that is oriented around finding the cause that you most care about deeply in terms of an individual campaign and donating to that cause Uh, and not thinking about, okay, how do we address the underlying structural issues that create these individual problems? But isn't that Um, the case with all charity? No. No, uh, I I would say many charities are focused in their advocacy work on addressing these structural Mm. issues in, say, their policy advocacy, which in some ways is what GoFundMe is pivoting towards because they're trying to work now more with charities and not-for-profits in order to be seen not as just kind of ameliorating ongoing issues of injustice and inequality, but rather proactively contributing to solutions to these problems. Can I also just come in here? I'm not, I'm not saying that this is what you're saying, Matthew. I'm saying this is what I'm saying. This is a dimension to this that, that concerns me in particular. Um, and I think this will lead is what I would point to as maybe one of the primary differences between, between something like sort of charitable platform-based crowdfunding versus other forms of, say, community support raising, community fundraising, or even even overt fundraising that takes place through certain charities. Um, It just strikes me that in a local community, there are pathways of relationship and connection that are used, that are appealed to, that are built upon in order to raise funds, in order to raise support for a particular person. So it may be fundamentally word of mouth, but it is still something, this is someone who has a connection to someone within our community. And then the need, the particular need gets passed around and passed around and passed around. Uh, so there's a kind of relational, there's a pre-existing relational fabric that's drawn upon, that's appealed to uh, in order to uh, alleviate a particular need or contribute to the alleviation of a particular need. What I think is so interesting, and, and you know, that's always going to have an emotional dimension to it. It may be the emotional dimension of connection to an existing community. It may be the emotional dimensions of the story itself. Um, You know, let me tell you about what happened to this person's daughter, for instance, or whatever. But but it's thick is the point that you're making. Well, it, it may grow less thick, but it is going to draw upon an existing relationship. And that existing relationship is then the conduit for the communication of the emotional content of the particular cause. When that relationship doesn't exist, when this is something that is put up in order to appeal to people who have no relationship with this person, no prior connection, or who may not even be, say, subscribers to or supporters to a particular charity on the basis of their monthly donations or periodic interest that they've expressed in the past. Now, there's some, some act of volition where someone has signed up to receive a newsletter from a particular charity, for instance, which I would also say is a kind of, it's a relational, is a relational connection that exists, uh, even if it's not necessarily a thick one. 
But what then needs to take the place of that relational dimension, that relational connection to the particular cause, has to be a certain emotional content that I believe, as Matthew pointed out before, then gets dialed up or, or uh, I don't mean exaggerated or somehow falsified, but I mean the presentation of the emotional dimensions of that particular need, the gravity of the need, has to be conveyed in, certain, in a certain way that it cuts through the attention-based marketplace. Uh, so it cuts through so that someone essentially notices it. Whereas in the example of a prior or pre-existing relational dimension, um, the emotional content doesn't need to be there to the same degree in order for the person to to pay attention to it and then want to contribute to it. So I think yep. it, it's not so much that I think that it falsifies, but I think in order to create something out of nothing, in order to create an interest where no relationship previously existed, there is something that needs to be added to the cause, to the particular case that's the object of the fundraising that I think may well be damaging to the ability of people to then pay attention to other things. And that sometimes are... that's the politics. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. That's right. This is The Minefield. Well, there Ali is. My name is Scott Stevens. is my co-host. Our guest today is Matthew Wade, who's a lecturer in social inquiry at La Trobe University. Matthew, is the key thing that you get out of that that like all social media platforms or really virtual platforms, you have to, what's displaced is that which is, well, I'm still going to use the word thick, even though Scott doesn't want to, but because I can't think of a better way of describing it. With that, it's displacing that and it in its stead establishes something that's mediated. So, I mean, Scott spoke about the power of the story as something that might cause you to donate. Well, that that's very effective actually in a social media age because the power of the story works, but that's an entirely mediated experience. I don't need to know you. What I need is the power of the story or something that allows me to, to access it. And so really it's the displacement of what we might perhaps incorrectly call real connections with those that are, because they're mediated, perhaps narrative-based or visual or some other kind of thing that only makes sense within a certain virtual logic? Whew, that is a, a prickly kind of question. I, what I think is distinctive about the everyday prevalence of crowdfunding that people undertake today is the expectation that even in your times of greatest suffering, where all you have to sell is your spirit, the market still presents a solution. You still must be an entrepreneurial subject in advocating for your deservedness. And what that requires is that you have to be a, a kind of sympathy entrepreneur. You have to have a really good understanding of your imagined audience and how they will interpret your deservedness. And you're, you need to have the kind of pre-existing social capital in terms of the networks that you have and the pre-existing cultural capital in terms of knowing how to articulate your story. And what tends to happen is that it tends to just, re in the case of, say, medical crowdfunding, it tends to just re to reproduce existing biases in who we see as virtuous subjects and virtuous causes, um, particularly when it comes to specific medical ailments 
there is a preference among donors often for heroic interventions when it comes to, say, cancer treatment, rather than giving donations in the treatment of, of more chronic conditions, which, again, tends to exacerbate existing inequalities. So that is... Yeah, I suppose the point I would make to that is it was always the case, right? Like, let's say I have some form of suffering, medical or otherwise, that isn't represented by charity because it's rare or just no charity has been built to deal with it. And there's no GoFundMe equivalent to go to. It's going to come down to my entrepreneurialism, isn't it? And it's going to come down to my contacts and how I can leverage them. Those contacts may be real rather than virtual. Perhaps cultural capital applies to the new world in a way it doesn't quite to the old. I'd have to think more about that, but maybe that's right. But apart from that, the broad structure of this, the the tectonic plates are kind of the same, aren't they? In part, I would say. I think one of the big differences is, and Scott touched on this earlier, is the amplification through crowdfunding platforms and the way in which our giving patterns are shifting away from giving towards charities and other non-for-profit institutions which might more equitably distribute those resources they receive compared with crowdfunding where it tends to be the case that it's a kind of winner-takes-all scenario. There is a small subset of campaigns that do really well and a long tail of campaigns that do really poorly. And it's that it's that scale that is the big difference that is occurring now. I mean, part of this, if we really wanted to be cynical, and it's something that I would resist at almost every point, but I, I think undeniable in what you've both been describing is the degree of, how can I put it, the feedback, the gratification, let's put it that way, that one receives in giving to a cause that has a particular emotional content. In other words, by doing something for that, I'm cutting through that sense of powerlessness. Or it might even be, you know, there's a kind of sheer humanity and my heart goes out. You remember the old phrase, my heart goes out to that person. Now my heart doesn't only have to go out to that person. Now I can also get online and do something about it. So there's, there's something there. There's the kind of, there's the gratification or the sense of empowerment or even agency that I think is undeniable in identifying a particular cause that it's embodied in a particular person. Um, but I think if, if we then see that as, say, the sum total of one's moral agency to address some of the great inequities or injustices or cruelties of the world, and if that sum total is then predicated on receiving a degree of satisfaction and if it doesn't then step into the next point, to the next level of one's, say, moral development, which is the ability to think more abstractly or more structurally about issues that, that affect a large number of people in common, that I then don't get the gratification from giving towards. Um, I guess my, which is a long way of saying my concern here is that the need for emotional gratification may well have the effect of morally infantilizing us and keeping us in a condition of moral infancy. I, w I would say that that is a really interesting proposition. And I think the, the aspiration to have an immediacy of impact for your donation is really understandable. To really get that bang for your buck and that good glow 
of knowing you've donated to a good cause and knowing precisely where it has gone and that it is doing good. Um, and that is reflected in the choices that people make, say, in times of, of an environmental catastrophe where a donor might have a choice where I could, I could find an individual campaign on GoFundMe and donate to them, or I can donate to, say, an organisation like the Salvation Army. And where I won't see the, the impact of that donation, but it might be distributed more equitably. And it's hard to, it's hard to kind of nudge people in a particular direction to think more abstractly, as you said, Scott, about, about what they can do with their donation dollars. But one effort that has been tried in a psychology lab coming out of the US is that they've developed a platform where you can go to this platform, you can type in a charity that you really personally resonate with. So you might choose the RSPCA, I really resonate with this charity. And you might say, I want to donate $20 to the RSPCA. What they then say on this platform is, okay, you can donate to the RSPCA, but you can also donate to one of these nine charities which we have deemed to be super effective in saving people's lives as, as efficiently, as cheaply as possible, and therefore they are super effective. And if you're willing to kind of split your $20 donation, say 50-50 between the RSPCA and this super effective charity, uh, we'll match your donation to a certain degree so that your dollars go even further. So there are experimental efforts to try to nudge people to think a little bit differently about their charitable giving. I don't know how effective it will prove, but it'll be interesting to see how well it goes. Wow. Matthew, thank you. No problem. It's been great to have you on the show. Matthew Wade, lecturer in social inquiry at La Trobe University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, uh, which is at an end. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.